Welcome to the teaching hour. We're working our way through the book of Jeremiah, but we'll be reading from two books this morning, first from Isaiah and then from Jeremiah. So I'll first be reading from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 4. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. And from Jeremiah thirty-three fourteen to 17. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. And he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Lord Jesus, only you and you alone can do just. You are our righteousness. You are all righteousness. Help us live in that way. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. I've had a, an old quote from a guy named Alexander Pope ringing in my head all week. It's very familiar. It says, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. If there's one thing uh, that was reinforced to me in our Wednesday discussion about this, uh, this sermon, it is that whenever the question of the church's role in dealing with injustice in the culture becomes the topic, uh, the, the, the temperature in the room spikes and, <laughs> and opinions become uh, very vigorous. Now, I want to say at the outset that the last thing I intend to do or want to do this morning is to share my opinions with you. In fact, that's the last thing I want to do anytime I'm the guy standing up here on a Sunday morning. If my task uh, was to share my own hot-button political or social issues with you, this would be a very different message than it's going to be. And you may, you may disagree with some of my conclusions from Scripture on this matter. If so, that's perfectly fine. But please understand that my entire goal this morning is just one thing. And that is for us to consider together what God has to say about justice on earth. And so I'm going to ask you uh, 
along with me to suspend your precious opinions, to suspend any, any fervently held ideas about what, what our role as the church or as believers is to be in, in the world when it comes to addressing injustice. And I'm going to ask that we all listen to what God has to say on the matter and submit ourselves to what God has to say. I'll show you where we're going, and then we'll go there. First, uh, that was welcome to the minefield. Uh, here are the two key points this morning that we're going to consider. First, what God says about justice on earth. And secondly, the believer's assignment when it comes to injustice on earth. When we look thoughtfully at what God has to say in His Word about justice, there are four very clear truths that repeatedly and emphatically show up. First, that God is just and He requires that men be just. Secondly, men aren't just. Third, justice therefore has to come from God and not from men. And fourth, the one by whom God accomplishes justice on earth is Jesus and only Jesus. And you could replace the, the, the preposition by with anyone that you want. By, through, in, for, on behalf of. Jesus is God's answer to injustice. First, God is just and requires that men be just. I want to start by talking a little bit about what God means by the word justice. The psalm that I closed with last week, Psalm 146, reveals a whole lot about what God means when He, when he speaks of justice. In verse 7 of that psalm, God gives a summary declaration that is that Yahweh executes justice for the oppressed. And then that declaration unfolds into a series of declarations that expand on that one. The psalmist declares that Yahweh, the one true God, gives food to the hungry, sets the prisoners free, opens the eyes of the blind, raises up those who are bowed down, loves the righteous, protects the strangers, supports the fatherless and the widow, and thwarts the way of the wicked. When God speaks of justice, He's not merely talking about consistent and fair application of laws and of judgments in a courtroom. He's talking about day-by-day compassion and protection and care for those who are less privileged and more vulnerable than others. God throughout Scripture is the advocate of the downtrodden. And that advocacy He calls justness. God requires that men be just. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, which we sang together at the beginning of this hour, God said, He has told you, O man, what is good and what God, what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly and to love mercy, literally to love covenant love, and to walk humbly with your God. In Jeremiah chapter 9, God says, He says that We're not to boast about strength or riches or wisdom or anything else, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows me, the one true God, that I am the one, I am the one who loves justice and righteousness. I delight in these things. In Jeremiah 22, God told the king of Judah what 
that, that to do justice and righteousness, to plead the cause of the afflicted and the needy is, quote, what it means to know me. To do justly is what it means to know God. The second point is that men are not just. God is just and men are not. When we see a list like that one that we looked at a minute ago in Psalm 146, we might conclude that some concept of justice seems to be seared into the very fabric of our humanness. So much so that even even a godless person who beholds an injustice on earth is provoked to a strong response. When we as human beings see the downtrodden, the sick, the poor being taken advantage of and mistreated by those who are better off, we call that injustice. And so does God. When we hear of someone being falsely accused of a crime or worse, being falsely convicted and imprisoned for a crime or even executed for a crime that he didn't commit, we call that injustice. And so does God. When we see people in positions of power over others abusing that power for selfish gain, we call that injustice. And so does God. So that must mean that human beings are inherently just, right? God says no. One of the most consistent patterns of human behavior in Scripture and in daily life is that the same people who have a visceral reaction to injustice that is perpetrated against them and against people they care about are amazingly quick to throw justice right out the window when doing justly toward others seems to them to put their own well-being at risk. The protection of whatever men and nations perceive to be good for themselves has turned indignation over injustice into genocide many times in the history of mankind. And when justice is handed out selectively to ensure that it serves the person dispensing it, it isn't justice at all. It's injustice. Here's what God says about the justness of human beings. Specifically, of His own covenant people in the Old Testament. Isaiah 59. And I'm reading selected verses from this amazing chapter. Verse 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, neither is His ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. And listen to these accusations. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one sues righteously and no one pleads honestly. They trust in confusion and they speak lies. Their feet run to evil and they hasten to shed innocent blood. They do not know the way of peace and there is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked. Whoever treads on those paths does not know peace. Therefore, justice is far from us. 
and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before You. And our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. And justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the street and uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking and he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. Pretty rough. That's God's assessment of our justness. Listen carefully to what comes next in verses 15 and 16. Now Yahweh saw... And it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man. And was astonished that there was no one to intercede. God looked down on earth and He found no one to take up the cause of His justice. Justice on earth cannot come from man because all of mankind is unjust. God is just and men or not. God's Word declares that fact over and over and over. Our assertions of our own justness fall to the ground when the One who made us has spoken so clearly about us. Because God is just and men aren't, the only One who can make justice a reality in God's creation and in the hearts of men is God, not men. Listen as I read Isaiah 59, verses 15 and 16 again, but this time I'm going to add verse 17. Listen carefully. Now Yahweh saw and it was displeasing in His sight that there was no justice and He saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then His own arm brought salvation to Him and His righteousness upheld Him. And He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on His head. And He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped Himself with, with zeal as a mantle. Last week we looked at Psalm 146. It says, Do not trust in princes, in mortal men in whom there is no salvation. His spirit departs, he returns to the earth, and in that very day his thoughts perish. And then, and then he draws the contrast between mortal men and God, and he says, How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in Yahweh, his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. Yahweh sets the prisoners free. Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind. Yahweh raises up those who are bowed down. Yahweh loves the righteous. Yahweh protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow. He thwarts the way of the wicked. Yahweh will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise Yahweh. So who's just and who's not? God is, 
and we aren't. And so God is the only one who can accomplish justice in His creation and in the hearts of men. And the only one by whom God accomplishes and establishes justice on earth is Jesus. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Again, very familiar. If you've ever heard Handel's Messiah, you've heard these verses. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it in righteousness and justice from then on and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. So how will God accomplish justice on earth? Through His Son. Isaiah 28, verses 16 and 17, Therefore thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. And what's that cornerstone? Jesus. First Peter says, Jesus. He who believes in that cornerstone will not be disturbed. Literally, will not be in a hurry. I love that. In that passage, God is about to pour out His wrath on the whole earth and destroy the, the, the refuge of lies that men have created. And He says, He who trusts in, in My cornerstone will not be in a hurry. Won't, ha- won't have to go anywhere to avoid that wrath because He'll be standing in the right place. He says, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. Then hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters will overflow the secret place. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4 that Joe just read. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise His voice, nor will He make His, vo- make His voice heard in the street. A bruised reed He will not break, and a dimly burning wick He will not extinguish. Beloved, that's talking about the first coming of Christ. Because when He comes again, He's going to put out a lot of burning wicks. It says He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until He has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for His law. Alright. So God is just. Men are not. God is the one who has to accomplish justice. And the one through whom, by whom, for whom, in whom, He will accomplish justice on earth is Jesus. And how does Jesus establish justice in the earth? How does He do that? Well, first, at the cross. Jesus bore the just punishment that we deserve. For all who trust in Him alone, Christ's payment for our sin satisfies the perfect justice and righteousness of God that demands a just penalty for sin. 
Isaiah 53 verses 10 and 11 says that prophetically in advance, if Messiah would render Himself as the perfect guilt offering, His Father would see it and be satisfied. It says that this righteous, this sinless servant of God would justify the many as He would bear their iniquities. The full and just penalty for the sin of all who trust in Jesus is paid in full. It's paid in full because Jesus died on the cross and did in our place what we could never do for ourselves. And He was raised from the dead. But all who do not trust in Him will bear the just penalty for their sins upon themselves. And that penalty will last for all eternity. And so if you're here this morning and you're trusting in anything or anyone including yourself to make yourself good enough for God, I and all of my brothers and sisters here this morning pray with pray very earnestly that you will abandon your trust in anything else and put your trust only in Jesus Christ because He is the one who makes us right in the eyes of God and nobody else. He will take your sin upon Him. He already took it if you trust Him. He will take your sin upon Himself and He will cover you. He will clothe you with His righteousness forever. All right. So that's how God executes justice for sin. Two ways. For all who believe in Christ, the just payment for our sin is upon Christ. For all who do not believe in Christ, the just payment for their sin is upon them. But what makes people just? How do people become just? Isn't that what God requires? He said, to be just is to know Him. He said, we are to care for the downtrodden as He cares for the downtrodden. How does that happen? How do men who are not just become just? Well, Jesus gives His justness to those whom He saves. He makes His righteousness our righteousness. He makes His justness our justness. And He does that entirely and only by bringing us into union with Himself because He's the one who's just. He's the one who's righteous. He has to put us in Him to make us just. To make men just and righteous, God has to replace our unjust hearts with the heart of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. How? In Him. In Him. In Jeremiah 22, God told the king of Judah that to be just is to know God. In Jeremiah 31, He tells us how we come to know God. This is a great New Covenant passage in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. And we'll, we'll see this again later in this series. But listen. Listen carefully. Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares Yahweh. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I 
will put my law within them. And on their heart, I will write it. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And they will not teach him again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, Know Yahweh, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. The new covenant that Jeremiah is foretelling in that passage is the new covenant in the blood of Christ. So I'll ask again, how does injustice in the hearts of men get fixed? There's only one way. God fixes it by bringing men, women, and children into union with the only just man who ever walked this earth through faith in Him alone. See, this is not about striking some kind of balance between the justness of God and the justness of men. It's not about a cooperative effort between man and God to accomplish justice on earth. It's all God or it's not at all. So what then does that tell us about the believer's assignment when it comes to injustice on earth? First, I want to look at what our assignment isn't, and then we'll talk about what our assignment is. What our assignment isn't. First, we are not commissioned by God to get unjust people to act like just people. Beloved, the last thing this world needs is for Christians to tell them that if they'll just try harder, they can be just and righteous when the truth that God declares over and over is that they absolutely cannot. Now, don't hear me wrong, please. We are most certainly commissioned to tell the world what God requires of all men. That's how men and women and children come to understand their need for Jesus. But telling men what God requires of them and telling them that they can do what God requires of them are two radically different propositions. Throughout Israel's history, God relentlessly told Israel what His character demanded of them. And just as relentlessly, He told them that they weren't doing what His character demanded, and that was because they couldn't. They weren't going to do what His character demanded of them precisely because they were stubborn, stiff-necked sinners and rebels against God even though He had delivered them out of bondage in Egypt and blessed them at every turn. We are not commissioned to make unjust people act like just people. And if we think about that for a minute, it will change the way many Christians approach this whole matter of addressing injustice on earth. And we are not commissioned by God to fix the injustices in our culture. And I'm Here's where I'm going to ask you to really bear with me and listen and don't, don't jump to conclusions about what I'm, what I'm saying until you hear what I'm saying. Whatever we do to address the injustices that exist in the godless culture and institutions of this world falls under means, not mission. It falls under means, not mission. I'll come back to that point momentarily, but it'll make more sense once we understand what we are commissioned by God to do 
about injustice. What is our assignment? It is to live justly as the redeemed people of God and to point others to the only one who makes men just. To live justly as the redeemed people of God and to point other people to the only one who makes men just. We are to live justly as those who have been graciously brought into relationship with the only just man who ever existed. We are to daily live out the true nature that God has given us as the redeemed children who have been recreated in righteousness and holiness of the truth, the truth which is in Jesus. That's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. But what does that look like? And what does that require us to actually do in our daily lives? Well, it looks like Christ, and it requires us to do what Christ did. When Jesus was here the first time, He could have ended all injustice and unrighteousness on this earth with nothing but a word. Everybody agree with that? But He didn't. He could have ended all corruption and oppression against the poor, the orphan, the widow, the foreigner, the prisoner, just as God always declared that it is His nature to do. Jesus steadfastly commanded men to be just as God is just in all of their dealings with other men. But beloved, Jesus did not take up the cause of ending the societal and institutional injustices that abounded in the Roman Empire. If you think Rome was a nice place to live for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the sojourner, the sick, then you need to go read some things about the history of Rome. There's a reason that lame people had to beg in the streets in order to live and to have a meal to eat. So what did Jesus do about injustice? Please listen carefully. Test this with Scripture. If you disagree with me, fine. Come tell me. Jesus' own example always focused on living out His own justness, righteousness, and steadfast covenant love in all His dealings with those whom He directly encountered. He healed the sick. Not all the illness that existed in the world, but the illness of those who came to Him and were brought to Him. That was a whole lot of people, but it was a tiny fraction of all the people in the world who were afflicted by illness in His day. If we're called to do what Jesus did, that should tell us something about God's priorities for what we need to be doing. The disciples of Jesus, and again, you tell me if I'm wrong, the disciples of Jesus did not launch crusades against the tyrannical and unjust practices of Rome or the evils that caused so many to suffer abject poverty or even, even the evil of slavery. Did they? What they did do, what they did do, was to show the steadfast covenant love of Christ to the people that God set in their paths using every resource that God put at their disposal to do so. They put their words, their time, their homes, their money on God's altar and they extended their paths beyond their own home stomping grounds even though God had to force the issue with them and drive them out of Jerusalem, some of them out of Jerusalem to do so. And they took the Gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth showing the compassionate love of Christ to everybody they encountered along the way. 
with everything that they had. What does God command us to do about injustice on earth? He commands us to live justly as His redeemed people and to point others to the only One who makes people just. Beloved, there is no place in God's Word in which He holds His people accountable for the injustices that are perpetrated by those who are not His people. There is no place in God's Word in which He holds His people accountable for the injustices perpetrated by those who are not His people. If you want to boycott an organization or a store or a restaurant that endorses unjust or ungodly practices, you have that freedom in Christ. But that's not your mission. It may be a means to your mission, but it's not your mission. When Jesus told His disciples to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's, He was telling them to pay the taxes that paid the salaries of the Roman soldiers that drove nails into His hands and feet and stuck a spear in His side and killed Him. And that was the single greatest act of injustice ever perpetrated by anyone on the face of this earth. God holds His people responsible to do justly, not to make the world do justly. And that should affect our priorities. Our mission as the church of Jesus Christ is not to fix the injustice and unrighteousness in the hearts of lost people. It is to point lost people to the One who does. It is to be His witnesses and His instruments to make other men and women and children His disciples. So all of our efforts, beloved, all of our efforts to work against injustice in the culture and the institutions of this world must be with that mission front and center. To point men to the One who makes men just. William Wilberforce and John Newton were right and godly to pursue the end of slavery in England. Their relentless, decades-long effort to secure the abolition of slavery demonstrated the just and merciful character of God and it adorned the message of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. A few years ago, I read an outstanding biography of John Newton called From Disgrace to Amazing Grace by Jonathan Aitken. I can guarantee you that John Newton knew very well that ending slavery in England didn't didn't free anyone from slavery to sin. He knew that his foremost assignment in his life was not to bring about the abolition of slavery, but to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what his life was about. Our mission, beloved, is not to mitigate the effects of the curse so people can have an easier life between now and the time they go to hell. Please don't hear me saying something I'm not saying. I am not saying, I am not saying that we're supposed to do nothing to ease the impact of the curse on the people that God sets before us. I'm saying the opposite. But what I am absolutely saying is that doing so doesn't finish our God-given assignment toward those very people. And far too often we act as if it does. I've seen, I've seen youth group mission trips in evangelical Christian churches where they sent their kids to South America to build houses with Habitat for Humanity and they didn't tell them they needed to share the Gospel. 
You know what 1 Corinthians 13 says about love? It says you can sell all your possessions and give them to the poor and deliver your body to be burned and you can still not have love. Because you know what love does? Love drives people. It moves people toward Christ. Jesus did far more to ease the pain and suffering of hurting people during His earthly ministry than anyone else has ever done. But He always, always did so in order to to introduce them to the One who will end sin and suffering. The One who will undo the curse. And we must do the same. Jesus always made Himself the point. And you and I must always make Jesus the point. Which is easier to do? Mow a lawn for a neighbor who's recovering from a heart transplant or talk to the same neighbor about sin and righteousness and judgment and the free gift of forgiveness and eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ alone? I can tell you which is easier to get Christians to do. It's easier to get them to mow the lawn. You know what's better than either? Both. We are called at all times both to proclaim and to adorn the good news of our glorious Savior. There are many, many worthwhile causes for the children of God to be engaged in during our time on this cursed earth. Pressing for legislation that protects life in the womb. Working at a crisis pregnancy center or a refuge for battered women or a shelter for the homeless. Speaking out in the classroom or the workplace or in an online blog about God's absolute sovereignty over human sexuality. Writing letters to your congressman and senator to encourage a strong stance against unjust laws and unjust enforcement of laws, running for public office, or any of thousands of other activities that display the justness and love and mercy of God to men. But beloved, every single thing that you and I do in this world to ease the effects of sin and the curse in the life of others must be done in order to point them to Christ who will undo suffering and injustice when He brings about the undoing of the curse. We're quick to quote Micah 6.8 as a clarion call to our fellow Christians to get with the program to help us fix the injustices in the world. But we must not forget the last and most foundational part of God's commission to His people in Micah 6.8. And that is to walk humbly with our God. As we seek to do justly and to love mercy, we must walk humbly with our God. And you know what that means? It means we will never see ourselves as the solution to what ails this world. We will see only Christ. It is Christ, not we, who makes the unrighteous righteous and the unjust just. And that does not go without saying. Ever. Jesus is the arm of God who accomplishes the justice that God, the perfect advocate of the downtrodden, could find no man on earth to accomplish. Our words, our causes, our entire lives must be about proclaiming and displaying Him 
Only then will our causes be godly causes. You guys have heard the Stephen Covey quote, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. It's kind of worn out, but it's a good statement. Which excites you more, brothers and sisters? Getting people to stop doing unjust things or introducing people to the one who will make them love to do justly? The one who alone makes unjust hearts just and loving and kind and merciful and compassionate and selfless. Our assignment, our mission as the spiritual household and holy nation of the living God is to proclaim Jesus Christ, to bear witness of Him to a lost and dying world and to adorn that proclamation by doing what Jesus did living every single day of our lives as imitators of God, walking in love as Christ walked in love. As He loved us and gave Himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. That's what we're to do. It's never one or the other, proclaim or adorn. It's always both. If you question that assertion, I would just ask you to go look harder at the life of Christ, the life of the disciples, and the epistles that were written by the disciples. The Gospels too. The followers of Jesus in the book of Acts were fishermen, doctors, tent makers. They showed the kindness and mercy of Christ to countless people in the most tangible ways, and they always, always spoke of Christ to those people. It's always both. Proclaiming and adorning the Gospel of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Here's a question every one of us needs to be asking on a regular basis. Am I more willing to risk offending someone and losing a friendship over the message of the Gospel of Christ than I am over any other cause in this world. Because if I'm not, my mission priorities have gotten messed up. A couple of final quick points. There's absolutely no place for self-righteousness in a believer's pursuit of just causes. Far too much of the discourse between Christians when it comes to dealing with injustices in the world and in the church amounts essentially to this. If only you cared as much about justice as I do, maybe we could actually get something done. Beloved, do not bite and devour your fellow believers when their hot-button causes aren't the same as your hot-button causes. And for Christ's sake, don't engage in character assassination of other children of God on Facebook because they're not as excited about you, about your political and social convictions. And if you think that's not happening, you must not have a Facebook account. People, there are as many worthy causes on this earth as there are minutes in a year. And in this era, we can sit in our own dens and be bombarded with endless details about injustices that are happening on the other side of the earth in real time. If there's a cause that you find yourself compelled to go to address, go for it. Go for it. You have that liberty in Christ. Do it with joy and do it with humility, not with self-righteousness. 
And lastly, outrage. (laughs) Outrage over the sins and failures of others has absolutely no place in a Christian's heart. The outrage of a child of God always exposes an assumed question. How could that other person commit such an outrageous violation of the character of God? And the answer to that question that we need to know in every case is the same way you and I have committed such outrageous violations against the character of God. In Titus 3, Paul instructed Titus to remind his fellow saints, quote, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Listen, to malign no one. To malign no one. To be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The cure to our outrage, beloved, is simple, godly humility. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. Brothers and sisters, let us do justly. Let us love mercy and let us walk humbly with our God as we point people to the One who makes unjust men just. Dear Father, we ask You, to make us excellent proclaimers and adorners of the incomparable gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.